Well, hello, everybody. Just a note before we get started. I know that we've been having some interference, some noise on the recording. Did some research this evening, and I found out that apparently the nursing home next door to us has something in the building that is interfering with recording with certain equipment that we haven't had a problem with before. So um, I'm attempting to work around that, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to get the noise off of the recordings. Uh, there's a bit of it on the first probably seven, eight minutes of this particular episode, but since Richard Radio Adventures is not scripted, I didn't want to just crash it. So enjoy, and let's get started. decided that I am my only, my own, my very own reality show. Yes, Richard's Radio Adventure. Y'all have heard me move out of a house in Ball Springs on uh, this particular podcast. Y'all have heard me move out of a house over in Forney. I believe y'all may have even heard me move out of a house over in Mesquite. It seems like we always moving out of houses. It's been uh, several years that uh, we take pretty long lapses. We're going to try not to do that anymore. However, I have decided that Richard is his very own reality show. <laughs> and you guys get to watch uh, or listen. It's kind of like watching a train wreck in slow motion. You know, you really can't bear to watch it, and it really doesn't turn your crank, but you just can't look away. It's kind of like watching Dr. Phil. Used to be Maury Povich, but I don't even think he's got a show anymore. I have to check into that. So, we've been working with the hotspots. We've been getting on DMR trying to get on uh, actually over-the-air radio. Uh, with that going on, we've had grandchildren that have been sick 
we've had uh, stepsons and stuff. <clears throat> they can't pay their bills, so we have to keep lending them money, even though we've been off work forever and a day. But what it really boils down to on this end of it is that it's probably time to get back to some radio stuff. Um, the more and more that I interact with other, other amateur radio operators, and this kind of hit home when I was talking on the radio to a guy in Tyler, uh, probably about 50 miles away on DMR one night, is that we kind of need to get back to radio, or more so, so that uh, at least y'all are getting something worth your time that you spend listening. So, I've decided to take some of these conversations that I've been listening to and t involved in and see if I can't consider some of the topics that we discuss because it's it really doesn't matter if it's on DMR, it's on a two meter repeater, or it's on HF. You know, sometimes a couple of radio operators will get together and they just start swapping stories. And in the case of uh, my friend in uh, N5OAR, Mike, over in Tyler, well, at the time of this recording, it was last night that he and I just sat there and swapped stories of our experiences in amateur radio over, well, in my case, it's been uh, probably a quarter century. In his, it's been close to that. So we talked about skills and techniques and all this other stuff. And I've also been listening to the older episodes of Resonant Frequency, the Amateur Radio Podcast, which we are still reloading those onto the website, uh, trying to release them on a two-week schedule. It's my fondest hope that when we hit episode 52, we're ready to put together episode 53, because that's where it ends at this time. And I've got a lot of stuff I could put on that podcast now there with the experiences I've had since I got back on the air and that kind of stuff that we could probably make a go. But one of those episodes of uh, Resonant Frequency I was listening, and they were talking about the feedback I was getting segment where people would write me emails. Antennas were kind of prominent in the discussion in the emails. And I got to thinking about the fact that in the beginning, Resonant Frequency, the amateur radio podcast, started out as me grasping at straws, trying to find something that was going to work. We did interviews, and we read ARRL bulletins, and 
we've read feedback on the on the show and stuff like that. But over time, it evolved into what I didn't know openly that I wanted it to be, but it turned into what I wanted it to be, which that particular podcast was basically all about when it finally hit its stride. It was basically all about Elmering. Teaching the new guys stuff, teaching the old guys stuff they weren't familiar with, and teaching. And it was in a format where it was meant to feel like a bunch of guys were sitting around at coffee and they were talking about antennas and radios and swapping stories and Everybody was kind of calm and relaxed and having a cup of coffee or a glass of tea and just kind of shooting the breeze and relaxing. So, between listening to those older episodes and some of the conversations I've heard recently, amateur amateur radio operators really haven't changed that much. And they still want to know stuff. So we got on the subject of antennas, and uh, I did a two-parter on the other podcast about, well, it started off as dipole antennas, and it kind of drifted on into wire antennas in general. And I'm the first to tell you, I was telling a story the other night that reminded me of this. I'm a 100 watt and wire guy. I've never owned an HF amplifier other than the one that I have in storage at this time and has been in storage since my father passed away almost 10 years ago. It's got a bad tube. Real nice uh, Dentron, Astron. Dentron. I think it's a Dentron amplifier. 1500 watts. Well, 2000 watts. And I've just never felt the need to use it. The only time I've ever used an amplifier is when I was had a packet station up and was moving NTS traffic and that kind of stuff. And to broaden my coverage, even though I had pretty good amount of height on my antennas, and I didn't want to dedicate one of my 50-watt radios to doing this because they were at a premium back then. Now I've got more junk laying around than I know what to do with. But I was able to take this. uh, I've got a Mirage 140-watt amplifier which if I take one of the old HTX 202s and plug it into my power supply and put it on, I think it was low power. Yeah, it was low power because it was a three in, three watts in instead of five. And I didn't want to screw the thing up. 
so I was putting a watt into a three a three watt input. It was 140 watts out on a five watt input. So I never actually checked it, but I think I was probably putting out 75 to 100 watts and running back at radio from an antenna that was in a position that was uh, in pretty good sh pretty good shape. We were kind of high up in the area. And then it was uh, 30 feet off the ground, 35 feet off the ground. I know that I could reach out on uh, 5 watts and touch the EOC in Carrollton, Texas, about 35, 30, 35 miles away on Simplex without any problems on on phone. So that's the only time I ever have actively used an amplifier. But we get back to 100 watts in a wire. Uh, most of the HF rigs I've had over the years, high end on them was roughly about 100 watts. Now, not on AM and not on FM. And yes, I have run some FM HF. Some of you may not know, but, and they may not even be there anymore. At one time, there was a slew of FM repeaters on the upper portion of the 10-meter band. And it just so happened one of those particular repeaters was in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, which is where I live. And the, two, the receiver and the transmitter were separated by 30 miles. And they had a radio control link on 440 that ran between them, but not only had I worked that one, because as a technician, I could get in on the link even though I couldn't use, at the time, I couldn't use the frequencies that those that repeater was on. I could get in on the link. It was a Simplex 440 link and be able to operate that particular repeater because my privileges allowed me to get on that 440 frequency. However, I've worked them in the Virgin Islands and other places, and it was a lot of fun. It's kind of like today with DMR and repeaters and all the other stuff that goes on like that, DMR and D-Star and that kind of stuff. They wouldn't really qualify you for any certificates, awards, that kind of stuff, but it was kind of fun to fool with them. Now in the case of antennas, and uh, that's kind of what I wanted to bring up this time, I got to talking about dipole antennas on uh, one of the episodes of Resonant Frequency, and I've talked about antennas on other in other places, in other, other venues, and that kind of stuff. And please understand, I'm not an expert on them. However, I know what's worked for me. Now, back in the dim recesses of time when I was operating on that band that we try not to talk about and we never fess up to having used, I had a uh, an old Johnson Whiteface. And the older guys among you will know right off the bat what I'm probably on the verge of saying. 
but this old Johnson from Whiteface, uh, 27 megahertz radio, had, I think it was five channels in it, which is no big deal. But the other side of it was that you could get in that radio that was a FCC mandated standardized 5 watt uh, 27 megahertz AM radio transceiver and you could get in the back of it with your diddle sticks and I'm not even sure if they call them that anymore it's basically a plastic screwdriver and make a tune a little bit on some stuff that was inside that bad boy and it would get dead key at 100 watts. So I've got this radio that all I have to do is key it up and it'll kick out 100 watts on an AM. And I have it set up in my bedroom at the house I was living in at the time. And I got to thinking to myself, you know what? Sure would be nice if I had a better antenna. Now, the antenna I had at the time was, uh, I don't know how you'd describe it. It was basically an 11-meter dipole wrapped in fiberglass. For those of y'all that have been around since the day, old days of uh, Radio Shack, it was a Shakespeare uh, big stick antenna. And it was just one big, long piece of fiberglass. It was about the size of an AR-10 Ringo Ranger. And I had it up on the house on a pole and running into some standard coax, plugged in that radio. And I didn't do too bad with it. I had another radio in the car as well. And uh, it did pretty good. Problem was, the really, the... Stations that were weighed down in the noise. I really had a hard time pulling them out by ear. And this radio didn't have a whole lot of controls that were involved in filtering. And I was looking for something better. So, my father had recently become a ham. And he was reading up on the literature about the electronic end, you know, building transmitters and putting together kits and all that stuff. But in amongst some of the literature he acquired were a handful of the basic ARRL uh, antenna books of the time. Uh, the one that I remember most of all is the W1FB's antenna book. And I told him, you know, I was having a lot of trouble with noise, and he was trying to convince me to go over to amateur radio anyway. So he hands me a copy of W1FB's book. And I take it home, and I start reading it, and I take it to work with me. I had a lot of time at my job at the time, you know. It was one of those deals where you wait and wait and wait, and then there's 10 minutes of terror, and then you wait and wait and wait some more. And I finally came across one in there called a Delta Loop. 
Now, the Delta Loop antenna was right up my alley because it was cheap to build. You could take... <clears throat> the Delta Loop is a triangle-shaped antenna that is either fed on the side or fed on the bottom. And depending on where you feed it depends the uh, polariz polarization of the antenna. Now, for some of you, this might sound familiar because it basically is a, a quad, or not a quad, but uh, a square loop antenna, but it's triangle shaped. And it could be built, because I was only running 100 watts, with wire that was inexpensive and easy to come by, but it needed a matching device. It needed something to match the impedance of the antenna to the impedance of the coax. And this could be achieved by taking a quarter wave, a quarter wavelength, length of 75 ohm communicate or cable, uh, 59 RG59, and then multiplying that length times the velocity factor. And for those of you that don't understand what velocity factor in please go look that up because it is important when you're doing basic antenna design anyway and uh, it used to be listed if you were looking at coaxial cable in a uh, a catalog radio shack was real good about it they had you know, specs on the wiring, and one of those specs was the velocity factor. And you could go ahead and build this, take this quarter, quarter wave length of 75 ohm, multiply that length by the velocity factor, which would make it a little shorter, cut it to length, attach the braid to one side of that delta loop, the center conductor to the other side, put a, uh, a PL259 on the other end, use a barrel connector, plug it into some 50 ohm cable. Then you plug that 50 ohm cable into your radio. Well, it made a world of difference. <clears throat> because as soon as I hooked the thing up, I was amazed by how quiet it was. The noise floor being S3, S5 most of the time on that band during uh, that part of the cycle, it was absolutely the quietest thing I had heard in forever because I immediately got that noise level down to S1, S3. And it even got to the point, because of the way I had it mounted on my house in Grand Prairie, Texas, that I could work a guy at Cedar Creek Lake 60 to 70 miles away on ground wave and we could have reliable communications on the minimal amount of power we were running and the minimal amount of the antenna I had. 
this was great because I hadn't been licensed. I had I wasn't even licensed yet, and that's one of the things that mainly turned me towards doing what I needed to do to get my amateur radio license. So then things went on along, and I finally got in a position that I got my license. I had a borrowed HF rig, and I needed to get an antenna in there. Now, here's where we fall into the place where people are going to think I'm crazy because I feel that balance are a good thing, but you don't have to have them to build a wire antenna. Now, your basic dipole antenna, when stretched out horizontally, exhibits an impedance of about 73 ohms. I think that's right. 73.36. Now, I may get this backwards, so y'all don't hold me to it. I got, I got, it's been a while since I even rolled this over in my brain. However, if I have it backwards, just flip around what I'm about to say. So when the dipole is out flat, it exhibits an impedance of roughly 73 ohms. When you take those two wires and put them at a 90 degree angle, it exhibits an impedance of roughly 36 ohms. Now, this is the reason that you see a lot of ground planes that they have radials hanging off of them, counterpoises, whatever you want to call them, at about 45 degrees. And the reason for that is, or 45 degrees to horizontal, and the reason for that is the same reason that an inverted V needs to be at 100 and I think it's 110 or 120 degrees as far as the angle because that brings the impedance of the antenna roughly into the range of 50 ohms. So then we talk about balance. And then we move over to balance. In my case, I never used a balance until, well, if you count antenna matchers, which everybody else calls antenna tuners because they don't really tune anything. Um, until I, st if you don't count antenna matchers or matching networks, then I have never actually used a ballon on any of the antennas that I've built out of wire. I normally just cut a quarter, quarter wavelength of uh, wire attach it to the uh, center conductor, another quarter inch, quarter wave uh, wire and attach it to the braid and string that bad boy up and go to town. It's always worked for me. Now, in theory, what I have is a quarter wave wire and, and a quarter wave radial, but They've always worked efficiently, and I've made some uh, incredible contacts on these things. But I digress.
Let's talk about violence in action. Now, there the two most popular ones out there are the one-to-one -one balance and the four-to-one balance. Now, in the case of one-to-one -one balance, you're really only basically matching an unbalanced system to a balanced system. Uh, you're not changing impedance. You're not uh, doing the other stuff you need a balance for. All you're basically doing is taking that antenna and turning it into a, or it's a matched, uh, there's a matched feed on it, okay? The match is there. And you're turning it in, our balanced feed is there. And you're turning it into an unbalanced feed point, so you can plug coax into it. If you have a way to hook uh, ladder line or something like that up to your radio, then you really don't need the ballon in that case. Because that feed line, the ladder line, ribbon line, whatever you're using is a balanced feeder running into a balanced antenna. So you really don't need this ballad, the balancing going on until you plug into a coaxial cable, which is an unbalanced line. Doesn't make a lot of sense when I say it, but you never know. You, you can get the gist of it, and if it's really vexing you, you can look it up. So, I've had a lot of luck with those. Now, I did have a G5RV, a pre-made G5RV that I purchased at a hemp fest which did have a small ballon on the bottom of it. But it also had 300, 300 ohm ladder line, yeah, running to the driven elements. And it accomplished all that tight. Accomplished all the stuff that needed to be accomplished. And uh, actually it was a pretty good antenna but I really couldn't tell that it outperformed any of the antennas that I made myself. So, you go back to cutting these things, and they give you the formula. Now, the formula for a half-wave dipole, 468 divided by the frequency in megahertz. In the case of a quarter wave, you cut that in half, 264. And you cut them, you cut the length, you cut them in the middle, you hook them up, you put them in the air, you've got the, got the legs about at the angle they're supposed to be, and you've still got this high SWR. Well, it turns out you get back into something similar to the velocity factor again. And other things around the antenna affect the field coming off the antenna, which can raise or lower your standing waves on the line. So what do you do now? Well, you can get an antenna tuner or uh, one of these antenna analyzers and hook up to it, and it'll tell you where the antenna's resonant. Well, okay you know that it's just a little bit out of band on the high side on 80 meters. What do you do next? Well, just remember 
that wire antennas or any antenna, the driven element is longer at lower frequencies to be resonant. And it's shorter at higher frequencies to be resonant. So in the case of an 80 meter antenna that's a little bit out of band on the high side, well, you need to make that antenna shorter. I think that's right. And in the case of it being out of band on the low side, it needs to be longer. So it doesn't hurt to cut these antennas at the formula that we've all learned as we were becoming amateur radio operators. But in fact, it's better to do that because if there's any adjustments that need to be done, then you'll have to make the antenna shorter. And it's easy because all you have to do is clip a little bit off that wire. And in the case of lower frequencies, you cut big old chunks off that wire. As you get higher, well, let's put it this way. On 80 meters, you might have to cut three, four, five inches at a time off that antenna until you get it close to where it needs to be. You know, you kind of want it on the center frequency of the band. At least that's where I try to put them. And, but at 10 meters, you're probably talking about inches. In, I mean, inch, inch and a half, two inches, something like that to get it to come into line. Simply because of the difference in the size of the wavelengths that you're working with which has to do with the length of the antenna or vice versa. And it's kind of complicated. But as long as you can trim down that antenna, you're in good shape. When you turn around and have to start adding to an antenna, whole different ball game. Now, over the years, I've been a big fan of number 12, number, not number 12, Number 14, braided copper wire. Now we can go into the braided for a minute. Let's, the reason we want to use braided instead of solid wire is simply because of skin effect. And skin effect is the fact that the electricity doesn't travel inside the wire. It travels on the outside of the wire. It rides the uh, outer skin of the wire to get from point A to point B. It doesn't travel through the wire like a pipe. So the more surface area you have, the more energy you can put into that system without having problems such as overheating and that kind of stuff good example. I have been able to run 10, 20, 30 watts on magnet wire. And if you've ever had magnet wire in your hand, you know it's incredibly thin. And sometimes it's as thin as human hair. But I wouldn't put a kilowatt and a half through it. 
whereas I feel that I was more than able to be more than comfortable using 12, 14 braided or uh, stranded copper wire because it's still the same size wire as solid. But it has so much more surface area per inch because you have multiple strands of wire that have multiple surfaces that allow the electrical current to move down those wires. Now, it doesn't make sense on the, on the top, but when you think about it a little bit, it, it starts to get clear. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, uh, well, I don't know a good example right now. <laughs> so you take this wire and you put it in the air and you now you're trying to tune it you cut it too short well you can get out there with a soldering iron you can solder on a pigtail and then start trimming again or you can do what I used to do which was you can go get some alligator clips you can take you a long piece of wire and stick it in that alligator clip and then clip the alligator clip to the end of the antenna that's too short and then start trimming the wire coming off that alligator clip. Now the clips are cheap. So if you should accidentally trim it too short again, you take it off, throw it in trash, put another one on. There are some guys that used to they would cut an antenna a certain length. Then they would take this antenna, and they, a lot of the MCOM guys did this once upon a time. You could take the antenna, cut it to a certain length, you know, whatever was going to be good for you to set up out on, a, uh, on an MCOM drill or an MCOM activation or whatever. And then if they wanted to change bands on the antenna, they would take, unclip the two pigtails that were on it, clip two more pigtails on there that were a different length, and the antenna would be close to resonant on that new band. Now, at one time, this whole theory was replaced by the power pole, the Anderson power poles, because they were coming in, and everybody wanted to use them. And you could take those, build your pigtails, and then all you had to do was unplug one jumper and plug another jumper in, and you were there. <laughs> so you can remedy cutting them too short, but it's best to cut them a little long in the first place. So I never did finish balance. When we, got, when we were talking about balance, you know, you should build your antennas the right way. A lot of that information comes out of the ARRL. They have people guide, people testing that kind of stuff. Uh, other amateurs have tried stuff and tested it. You know, I've had I've heard of guys working at the companies that sell the balance, saying that <laughs> they're really kind of a waste of money. That, at least that's what I've heard. So now we got a ballon, we got a piece of wire in there. 
we know how to match it, kind of. But then we start getting into higher-end matching. Things like Pi Networks, Pile Networks, and that kind of stuff. And that's why we call an antenna, I call an antenna tuner an antenna matcher. Because an antenna tuner, in most cases, has a couple of rheostats in it. I believe they're rheostats. And a coil, which, as you click a knob, it changes the distance of the amount of that coil that the two contacts are on and has to do with inductance. So, and don't get me wrong, I've used plenty, plenty of matchers or tuners, but it basically tricks the radio into thinking that the antenna is resonant so that your, your radio won't cut back on its output to protect its circuitry, meaning that the radio thinks it's 50 ohms or roughly that, and so it puts out full power. You know, in that case, we start getting into things like SWR, and everybody wants that perfect one-to-one -one SWR. But the problem is, in my case, I have never had an antenna that was maximum power output if it was showing one-to-one -one SWR, a perfect match. In fact, more often than not, I found out that I had maximum power out if the SWR was 1.2 to 1.3. And this little anomaly is one of those things that kept me awake at night for a while. But I finally decided to go with the flow, and I found that my radios that would put out 87, 88 watts, thereabouts, at 1 to 1, would swing right on up to 100 watts if it was 1.2 or 1.2.5 to 1 or 1.25 to 1. And that's something you need to look out for also because in the case of automatic antenna tuners, them guys want to get it 1 to 1. So you're putting stress on the electronics in the radio, you're putting stress on the tuner and that kind of stuff and it really doesn't hurt to have your antennas resonant anyway. Like I said, I had a G5RV. Those things aren't really resonant anywhere. But because of the way they're made, if you have a tuner in line, they will work multiple bands without any problems. Sorry, guys. Had a brain fart. Um, they will work multiple bands without a problem. Now, one of the little anomalies in the way our band plan is, uh, thank you, ITU, uh, is that in the case of a 40-meter antenna, yeah, that's right, a 40-meter antenna, 
a 40 meter antenna will work on 15 meters. It's usable on 15 meters. And I've proven this myself after I heard a lot of people talking about it. And once you put a tuner matcher, whatever, in line or a matching network in line, you're able to get those close SWR readings that allow you to have power out, uh, plenty of power out. Now, that's the one little anomaly that I've found in HF, and I'm sure there's probably more, but that's the one that came home to me. Just like in a lot of cases, unless you're using really thick wire, it's kind of hard to cover the whole 10-meter band. In fact, I was having to run two separate antennas for that at one time because I was working up in the FM portion, in the AM portion, and down in the sideband portion. And it's simply because I was working the FM repeaters up top, I was working CW down at the bottom. So now we've taken a little odyssey through this. And another thing that can change your impedance and uh, either be a godsend or Satan incarnate is that you can strip the ends of those wires. We were talking about braided wire on dipoles. You can strip the ends of those wires a little bit, inch, two inches, and spread out the stranded wire. And it will make the antenna a little bit more broad banded. Now, the scientific theory behind that has always eluded me. I've never actually pinned anybody down and asked them why it's that way. But it turns out that if you will spread those wires out, it makes them a little bit more broadbanded. So, now we've talked about dipoles. Boy, have we talked about dipoles. So let me talk before we go. Let me talk about uh, let me talk about long wire antennas, and I'll get through this kind of quick. Some amateur radio operators over the years have called anything that is made of wire or any wire antenna, mostly dipoles, cubicle quads that were made from wire. Uh, delta loops, rhombics, yeah, rhombics are a whole different subject. Uh, that kind of stuff, if they were made of wire or cable, they were, quote, a long wire antenna. Well, I'm a little old school, and the guys that elmered me made it pretty clear that a long wire antenna is a, let's see, a random long wire antenna or a ZEP, which I doubt very seriously. There's very many ZEPs out there nowadays. Uh, ZEP being Zeppelin, they used them on Zeppelins. Um, and a couple of other like that, which are basically one great big long piece of wire plugged in the back of your radio. Now, 
random long wires and even non-random long wires have been used for years for different things. Like I said, ZEP, ZEP antennas and that kind of stuff. And we're not even going to get into some of the weird stuff. But they came back into vogue, long wire antennas, came back into vogue. I guess it was probably... 10, 15 years ago because everybody was on the near vertical incident skyway, uh, skywave bandwagon. Basically, you could string out a long piece of wire. It, ha it could be close to the ground. You got a high ra angle of radiation off of it. It was good for close in work just beyond the ground wave and that kind of stuff. Well, where I come from, that's just not having a not having a pole that's high enough to get it quarter wave off the ground. But uh, MCOM groups and everybody else were using them, and they were getting some pretty good results on them for what they were using them for. Now, I live in the state of Texas, and in the state of Texas, our state EOC is located in Austin, Texas, which is kind of close to the center of the state. And I live in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I haven't judged it or hadn't uh, thought about how many miles away that is in a few years, but I'm sure it's two and a half to 300 miles easy. It's probably a little further. Now, it wasn't unusual for one operator I knew to take a piece of wire and some tent pegs and stretch that wire out, which I believe was a quarter wavelength on about 160 meters, somewhere in the neighborhood of 100, 125 feet. And with those tent pegs, have it about a foot and a half, two feet off the ground drive a, uh, a ground rod in the ground for the ground side of the coax and be able to load that thing up and talk to the OC in Austin. Now, I had similar results with a G5 RV on 75 meters that wasn't but 25, 30 feet off the ground. Uh, I had no problem getting into the OC down in Austin. So... These things were pretty popular back then. I'm not sure how popular they are now, as I've said previously on Richard's Radio Adventures. Uh, I've been off the air for a little bit. But it was in vogue. Long wire antennas. Now, my experience with that has been I dropped a coax out the window of the house I was living in at the time. Uh, yeah, we had to sell that one. And I dropped a coax out the window. I drove me a six-foot ground rod in the ground, hooked up to that with the coax, and then took a wire, ran it down the side of the house to the fence line, over the fence, up to some trees in the back corner of my yard, over to another tree in the back corner of my yard, 
up to the end of the house and uh, stapled it off there at the end. And with that antenna, I was able to work not only 75 and 40 meters pretty well. Of course, I was running through a tuner also or an antenna matcher. And I could operate 180 meters or uh, 1.8 megahertz, 160 meters. Yeah. 120, 160. Anyway, so, and this was mostly because at the time I was hooked up with one of those all states nets, uh, 3905 Century Club. And I wanted to be able to work some of those stations down on 160 and get me one or two cards to prove that I did it. Because there was, at the time that that was going on, we had kind of pretty much abandoned that lower lowest band. Even though in Europe they was still going big guns, we had pretty much gotten where we didn't use it much because it was such a pain to get an antenna up for it. Um, now. Under that same situation sometime later, I went down the fence line, had a chain link fence around the backyard, went down the fence line, made sure all the all the metal parts had a good electrical connection, and loaded that fence up and achieved the same goal. So... It that says something for amateur radio ingenuity, and we'll talk about that in uh, probably a future episode. So we've talked about dipoles, we've talked about matchers, we've talked about loading fences, we've talked about random wires. Oh, good. We haven't really. Uh, we've pretty much reached the end of that for this time. It's like I said, y'all, uh, y'all know I got on the, back on there a few months back, back around June. My wife became sick in Ju at the end of July. Uh, I'm studying up on DMR and D-Star -Star again. I have radios left over from the initial D-Star craze. Um, Yezu uh, System Fusion, I'm able to work over the DMR hotspot. And I do have some videos coming out over the hotspot. Uh, Y'all check over YouTube. Uh, and that kind of stuff. But I've been having these long conversations. You know, it really... One of those things, that's... One of the gripes I had when I first got on the air was that we were starting to distance ourselves in ways that kind of destroys the camaraderie, in my opinion, where amateur radio is concerned. Due to COVID, there hasn't been a lot of club meetings going on unless they go on over there. Uh, it's hard to get a bunch of guys together to just have, some co have a cup of coffee and shoot the breeze about radio. And I'm trying to learn, relearn some of the stuff that has slipped out of my head over the last eight, nine, ten years 
that I haven't been able to be on the radio. So having these long conversations with some of these guys, even though Tyler's a pretty fair piece from here, but we talked for about two hours, uh, what would be last night at the time of this recording. And it is my fondest hope to get back to having full-scale resonant frequency the amateur radio podcast in whatever form it may take sometime in the future so we can get back to doing mainly Elmering. And y'all don't just have to listen to me ramble. So I'm really trying, sitting here trying to think if there's anything else I need to say on that subject at this time. Uh, wire antennas. Um, no. I will put a little short thing in here and I plan on going on at length about it at some point in the near future. Is radio operators in general. Well, sort of. Um, Mike and I, Michael and I were talking last night about various things we did on VHF making incredible contacts on FM, VHS, Simplex, and various and other things. I was telling him about uh, a big gun DXer that I used to be able to get, sta I could hear him in the pileup and be able to get a station that he was trying desperately to get. And the difference is he was running a kilowatt or so of power with purpose-built antennas and elevation and a hot rod station and all this other stuff. And as I've told you, told y'all not too long ago, you know, I'm a hundred watts in a wire guy, but I could sneak into these pileups on these contests, snag a station that he had been calling for some time and be out of there. And he may get the station, but most of the time he didn't. And that goes back to skill set. And there's a certain skill set, even though you newer guys, y'all probably don't think there's a lot of skill to it. But radios, they, you know, it's kind of like uh, those of you who go to the gun range. You know, the first time you go out there, you're not that great. Next time you go out there, you're a little better. If you go out there enough, you're really good. Working on cars, same way. And I know that for a fact, because uh, one of the reasons I had to shut down resonant frequencies because I was working in car shops and didn't have the time. <sighs> but, you know, you start off working on cars with cheap set of sockets and screwdrivers from Walmart or uh, a dollar store or something like that and if you work on them a lot you gradually improve your equipment you gradually improve your skill set and before long you're pulling engines replacing heads and you know working working with torque specs and uh, clearances and that kind of stuff and it's just it's like anything you start off with a narrow band of skill sets and you broaden those as you go along and radio is the same way 
and there were a lot of stories told last night, and every last one of them reminded me of how I built my skill set in the hobby. There's a few people out there. Sorry, Rod and Flo. Uh, there's a few people out there that think it's a hobby. It's just a hobby. It's not any different than putting jigsaw puzzles together or doing cross stitch, you know, making little pictures on pieces of fabric with a needlepoint and that kind of stuff or, you know, stuff like that. But there's more to it. And the best operators have skills. And the only reason I got off on that at this particular moment is the fact that I was thinking about Gary and getting in there being able to snatch fucking station or snatch stations out from under him. And I'm sorry about the sorry about the language, y'all. <laughs> but it was a matter of skill set. It wasn't that my stuff was bigger and better, it's that I knew how to operate it better. Operate my equipment better than he knew how to operate his, apparently. And it's little things. A quick example is, in the case of a pileup, if I run a, and I've never been one to go chase DX or chase worked all states or any of these other awards, I like cards. I like the cards because they're all different and they're, they're kind of cool. And I understand that's going by the wayside as well. But he's got this, and he's trying to brute force his way into this pileup so he can get this guy to answer him, so he can tick it off on his worked all states or DXCC or whatever he is working on. And in my case, I've got this little bitty dinky station. It's got a homemade wire antenna pushing 100 watts, if I'm lucky, on a good day. And the difference being, I can get it and he can't. And it's because I know little things. You know, it, they're on sideband. You dial a little bit off frequency on sideband, you sound different than everybody else. If you sit there and listen to the rhythm of the people trying to get this guy's attention, you figure out when there's going to be a break where everybody's taking a breath, and that's when you open your mouth. You figure out how the exchange goes, and you work that to your advantage so you're a little bit different. It's kind of like uh, I heard years ago of something that really made sense after I thought about it, which had to do with, of all things, raffles and stuff. And this one guy was talking about, if you take your ticket and you carry a highlighter in your pocket and you get your ticket and you take that highlighter and hit that ticket with the highlighter and then throw it in the jug, your chances of having that ticket pulled have just increased by a thousand percent. And that may not be the exact number, but it may... It, proves the point or gets the point across you improve your chances because human nature is if you've got all these tickets in that barrel and you've got one that's got some highlighter on it you're naturally going to grab for that one to highlighter 
or if it's got a dog-eared corner or something like that. And it's the same way with uh, working on there. You improve your skill set. I'm going to tell a story, and then we're going to be gone because I feel myself going into two or three other episodes at this point. But <clears throat> here is the story. Now, I spent a lot of years being part of races, being part of national traffic system, and all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't until Resonant Frequency, the amateur radio podcast, started that I started beginning to build my ability to communicate more effectively which led me to a situation where, getting on these nets, I was able to perform better. Good example. In the case of Racy's nets here in Dallas County, or, well, I'm not in Dallas County now, but in Dallas County, um, it doesn't matter if you're in a net or there's an active situation going on. When you check into the net, you check in thusly. This is Kilo Bravo 5, Juliet Bravo Victor, whatever your information is, and then you unkey. And they will call you if you didn't give your information. Well, in the case of races, it would be Kilo Bravo 5, Juliet Bravo Victor, Unit, f I think it's 5198842, something. Anyway, 842519, something. <clears throat> and that's all you say. They come back to you, and then you give your information. And you give your call sign at the end. And that's it. Skill set. A lot of guys get out there and get excited, and they can't even remember their name. But then you advance to net control, and it's even more so. You have to, you're the traffic cop, so you're having to direct traffic and stuff, basically, on, on there. But in the process, you have to keep yourself from getting excited, flushed, you know, exasperated, whatever, and everything else. A good example of that for me was we were having a severe storm come through Mesquite. I was net control. Everybody started losing their minds because we had straight line downbursts, and we have some good ones here in Texas, buddy. And um, everybody was starting to freak out because they thought it was a tornado. Well, I have 18 guys trying to get in at the same time, calling net control, and I pick up the microphone, take a deep breath, key the microphone, and say, All stations, please stand by and unkey. And the skill set that had been learned was give them a chance to take a deep breath. After about 30, 45 seconds, I picked the microphone up and I said, this is KB5JBV, Mesquite Racy's uh, Skywarn net in progress. Do I have any stations with minimum reporting criteria and unkeyed, unkeyed the radio? Now the 100 guys trying to get in didn't say a word because none of them had minimum reporting criteria. 
then I continue to on. Does anybody have, you know, minimal, minimal criteria, please uh, come now, and they would check in that kind of stuff. But giving them a moment to calm down and rest, or calm down, take a deep breath, slowed everything back down, calmed everything back down, and it's a matter of skill set. Same as the DX stations in the contest. Learn, learn what you need to do to get, get their attention and then take your time and do it. Like working in any radio operation. So I've gone a lot longer on this than I planned on going on it, guys, folks. And I'm sorry about that. Uh, I think we're probably going to just go ahead and call it quits for this time. Because we've talked about radios, we've talked about skill set, we've talked about dipoles, tuners, balance, all that good stuff. And I need to go ahead and uh, get myself in bed because the wife is home from the hospital. But we are still having company like you wouldn't believe. All kinds of rehab people coming through this place all hours of the day. And uh, I promise to get y'all some videos out pretty soon. Next episode of uh, RF Podcast will be out next Friday. And we are running through the older episodes at this point. But I feel rerunning them is important because there's a lot of good information in there, even though it's not always me giving it. So with that, y'all go out there and watch some radios. Talk to some people and listen to some stories. Work on your skill set, enjoy the hobby, embrace it, be the best radio operator you can be, and nobody can fault you if you can only go so far, but I know everyone, everybody in the sound of my voice can excel in amateur radio, and sooner or later, we're going to be talking about your name on RRA or on that i'm richard y'all take it easy we will see y'all next time 7 3 we gotta go Share the precious time.